And well, you might ask, what has the Lego movie got to do with our paradox for this morning? And the answer is, well, who is the guy in the centre? I know some of you won't have seen it, so I'll try and explain a little bit of what's going on. Who is the guy in the middle, looking terrified? He is Emmett. He is surrounded by Batman and basically Gandalf, the Green Lantern, Wonder Woman, Lego Ninjago, all kinds of heroes. And then there is Emmett, a very ordinary construction worker. Average, boring, forgettable, good at following the rules, a nobody, and yet he mistakenly ends up being prophesied as the special one, the one who's going to save the Lego world. And just to spoil it for you, eventually he is the hero. He's an accidental hero, but he's a hero nonetheless. How does he do it? The film says this, and I quote, because he comes up with ideas so dumb and so bad that nobody thinks they could ever be useful. The film has been very well received. It's been... Critically acclaimed in lots of ways, not just because kids love Lego and we love nostalgia, but because I I take it there's something in it that resonates with us. It's a storyline that we love. We love the underdog to win. When it looks hopeless, when it all looks useless, that's a story that we love and it's all over popular culture books and films, things that you watch on TV. Mr. Less Than Average with, with no real plan, no talents, no prospects of winning, normal people with normal foibles. Why do they resonate? Why do we love them? Well, I take it in one sense, it's us. Isn't it? It's our story. Normal people in normal situations, with normal lives, but wanting to make a difference, wanting lives of significance. And as we turn to our text this morning in 2 Corinthians 12, an extraordinary passage, I think we'll see there are very definite parallels, but there are two differences though, and I want us just to focus on these before we jump in. The first is this, Emmett is mistakenly thrust into the role of hero. But there's a difference because that is the way that God does it. We've seen it over the weeks gone by as we've considered these paradoxes, these challenges to our natural way of thinking. It's it's the shape of the Bible narrative. God uses poverty and death and hardship and suffering. When everything looks bleak and hopeless, But God. And so when we see Emmett saving the day, going against our usual framework in life of the survival of the fittest, I take it it resonates with us in a sense because of the way that God made the world. It resonates with the shape of scripture. It resonates with our hearts. Did you know God does work in and through and despite you? In the situation that he's put you in, with all your quirks and foibles and weaknesses, he is at work, the Bible says. You are not an accident like Emmett. In Christ, you are the plan. 
You are the way he's at work in the world. There's a second difference too though, and it sits at the heart of the passage, and it's the reason that God works like that. The reason? It's so that we remember it's not about us. In the Lego movie, Emmett is the hero. In the real world, God is the hero. And us plus him is always a majority. But that's not because of us. That's because of him. And the perpetual problem we face is that we look at our lives and we think they're all about us. And we read the Bible and we think it's all about us. But it's not, it's about him. His glory, his goodness. It's not about us. And so we're into 2 Corinthians 12, and we're listening in on Paul, confessing weakness. And the first thing he says, and we're basically focusing in just on verse 7 through to verse 10, the first thing he says is the reason for your weakness. Now it seems to me at the heart of the passage is the difference between Paul's conceit in verse 7b and his boasting in verse 9b. How do we get from one to the other? Well, we've come in halfway through an argument. Paul's writing to the church in Corinth. He's wanting to counter an accusation that's being made that he is not an authentic apostle, that his ministry is not authentic. Why? Because he looks and sounds rubbish. He's weak and he's feeble, and so he's not authentic. And if he were legit, these super apostles are saying, well, he would be a bit more eloquent like them, a bit more powerful like them, a bit more wise like them, a bit more impressive like them. They would have slickness and smoke machines and light shows and and rhetoric. and, And Paul is writing to them to defend himself. He's wanting to defend his message and the nature of new covenant ministry. And so rather than boasting about his strengths and his experiences and his fruit and and encounters with God, he boasts in his weakness, his sufferings, his persecutions. Although it's interesting on the way past, he does say, well, if if I were to engage with them on their terms, if I, if I were to tell you about my experiences, then I would wipe the floor with you, but I'm not going to do that. So he, God has given him these ecstatic encounters, verse 1 to 4. He describes visions, revelations. He was caught up to the third heaven, whether it was in the body or out of the body, I don't know. God knows. I know that this man, whether in the body or apart from the body, I don't know, but God knows, was caught up to paradise and heard inexpressible things, things that no one is permitted to tell. He could boast about them, but he's not going to. If he wanted to play their game, he he, he could and he would and he would win, but he's not going to play that game. And so here's where we pick it up this morning. He's had these experiences, these visions, these revelations, these encounters with the Lord, and they are real. And to stop him from being conceited, he's given a thorn in his flesh. A messenger from Satan to torment him. 
The Lord wants to guard Paul's heart. He has blessed him mightily. And so he wants to keep him humble. What was, what was the thorn in the flesh? We, we don't really know. That's the honest answer. Gallons of ink has been spilt down the years over it. Maybe a physical ailment. Lots of people think that. Maybe an illness. Something perhaps it was an individual, a person. Someone seeking to badger him and undo his work of ministry. Sent from Satan to, to deconstruct the gospel. Perhaps to move people back to works and away from grace. We do know it was unpleasant. That's one thing to cling on to as we go through these verses. As we consider weakness and suffering, we'll think about it in a bit, but he is not some self-flagellating masochist from a Dan Brown novel who loves pain, who wants to impunish himself. No, no, Paul longed that the thorn be gone. This is real life. And he asked the Lord three times to take it away. And when he's given the negative answer, then he trusts that the Lord knows best. Do you know, sometimes the Lord says no, but always the Lord knows best. He is at work. We know too that Satan's design for the thorn was not for good. But such is God's goodness and plans and power that he can turn even Satan's works for his glory. He is sovereign. He is a God who can use bad for good. But you see that the important thing really is not the nature of the thorn. The important thing is the effect of the thorn. On Paul's ministry. The thorn from Satan that the Lord used had a purpose. Our sufferings have a purpose. Verse 9. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. The purpose of the thorn, it's... To make him aware of his weakness. To make him aware of the sufficiency of God's grace and his goodness. To make him reliant on the God who empowers. To make his ministry more effective. Do You see, the perpetual bent of our hearts is towards self-sufficiency. We're like the toddler who's growing up and who wants to do everything by themselves and so it takes 15 minutes to put a coat zip up because they want to do it by themselves. Rather than relying on our loving Father, we, we think that we know best and we want to be self-sufficient and we think that we're the ones making things happen. It's always been foundational temptation for the people of God if you... Read through the Bible, you will see it again and again and again. God has to remind us who the story is about. We just glanced at a couple of verses a few weeks ago from Deuteronomy 8. I want to read you the slightly larger section. And you see this in Technicolor. 
Words from the lips of the man of God, Moses, who knows the heart of the people of God. On the edge of the promised land, his final sermon, his proclamation to them, because he won't be coming. He wants them to grasp this. He says, when you've eaten and are satisfied, praise the Lord your God for the good land he's given you. Be careful you don't forget the Lord your God, failing to observe his commands, his laws and his decrees that I'm giving you to this day. Otherwise, when you eat and are satisfied, when you build fine houses and settle down, and when your herds and flocks grow large and your silver and gold increase, and all you have is multiplied, then your heart will become proud. And you will forget the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. He led you through the vast and dreadful wilderness, that thirsty and waterless land with its venomous snakes and scorpions. He brought you out of hard rock. He gave you manna to eat in the wilderness, something your ancestors have never known, to humble you and test you, so that in the end it might go well with you. And you may say to yourself, my power and the strength of my hands have produced this wealth for me. Isn't that us? Isn't that what we're like? We are very good at forgetting. We are very good at tweaking history so that it's about us and what we've done and we become the heroes and our weaknesses and our failures are airbrushed out. But it's not really about us. And so in his kindness and to wean us off ourselves, the Lord allows us to suffer, to help us remember who the story is about. It was Tozer who said, It is doubtful whether God can bless a man greatly until he has hurt him deeply. And we struggle with that. Such is the bent of our hearts towards self-sufficiency, towards the story being about us. But such is the kindness of God in helping us see it as about him, that his grace is sufficient. So friends, do you see that suffering does not disqualify us from ministry? Suffering qualifies us for ministry. Modern Road, as we consider and we pray for an assistant pastor as we pray let's pray for someone who is not into airbrushing who's not into veneers but rather someone who is aware of and not ashamed of weaknesses because it makes them trust the grace of God more because they know his sufficiency and their insufficiency And it's an important thing for each of us too. For some of us, we're all too aware of our weaknesses and our immaturity and brokenness and the pain of the world and perhaps past experiences that have damaged us and that hurt and present things going on now. But can I urge you to see that this does not discount you from the part you have to play in God's plans. You're still a part of the body of Christ. He works in and through weaknesses. 
for the good of his kingdom. We might walk with a limp, but we still walk. For others, perhaps it's an opportunity to actually take some time for honest reflection and not to just ignore our weaknesses or brush them under the carpet, but have a sense of honesty with ourselves as to what we're like. To, to embrace them even as part of his sovereign plan. As he draws our attention away from ourselves and onto him. I was intrigued. Um, at the start of this year, the recently retired pastor, author, theologian, John Piper, um, wrote a devotional at the start of January. Um, and he was talking about his inability to read fast. Apparently he's just a really, really slow reader. He's obviously not seen this new app, which means you can read 500 words a minute. But it's meant over the years he's not been able to pursue the kind of academic career that he was hoping for, that he had dreamed of, that he had envisaged and mapped out his life for him. And so he says from the ages of 17 to 37, 20 years, he bemoaned the fact that he read at a snail's pace. And then one day he embraced it. And so he writes this. He says, what did it mean for me to identify and exploit this weakness? It meant first that I accept this as God's design for my life. I will never read fast. It meant I stopped complaining about it. It meant that I take my love for reading and... Do with it what I can for the glory of Christ. If I can only read slowly, I will do all I can to read deeply. I will exploit slowness. I will ask Jesus to show me much more in reading little than many see in reading much. I will ask Jesus to magnify his power in making my slowness more fruitful than speed. And in some ways, it's a slightly silly example. But you see the principle... That that thorn in your life, that weakness perhaps that you moan about, that you seek to cover up, that you're embarrassed by, it's, it's okay. Perhaps reflect on how it can be used by him. Perhaps in drawing you back to his self to trust in his strength, the sufficiency of his grace. There is a reason for your weakness whatever your weakness might be. A big part of that reason is to keep you from being conceited and to show you his sufficiency of his grace. But it's more than that. That's just, it seems to me, the first bit of the paradox in these three verses. Where it really hurts it's not just the fact that we accept our weakness, that we acknowledge our weakness, but Paul models an incredible response to his weakness. It's very striking. You see, what is our usual response to weaknesses or sufferings or hurts or insults? Well, either we look in, so it's a question of self-pity. Why has this happened to me? Why can I not be better at X, Y, Z? Or it's a begrudging, stoic acceptance, I will get through this and it will be okay. 
Or, or we look out and we compare with others and we see them in their carefree lives. We resent them. How does Paul respond? Let me read from halfway through verse 9. Paul says, Therefore I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why for Christ's sake I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. He gladly boasts in them. He delights in them so that he might be strong in Christ's power. This is a hard verse. I take it it's a summary of the previous chapter. We'll look at that a little bit in home groups through this week. But we need to be careful with a verse like verse 10. I think there's a tension as we, as we explore the brokenness of the world. Because in a sense it's not a question of enjoying suffering. We live in broken world, we're in broken bodies, it's right and proper and good that we mourn the brokenness of our world as we feel the pain, that we cry out to the God who can bring relief, as Paul did, crying out for the thorn to be removed. He, he longed that it be gone. It's okay to cry out, but don't be crushed. And if, as sometimes the Lord does in his loving, fatherly care, if he says no, then recognise that your suffering is a, a school. It, it transforms you and teaches you. It humbles you. It, and that is why Paul can delight in it. Because of what the suffering does, is it pushes him back to the Lord. You read verse 10, and the four different things, five different things, weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, difficulties, are, some are inherent weaknesses, just the way that we are as people. Some are how people treat us and insult us from the outside. Some are simply the hardships of life, the brokenness of the world, which means our responses to them will vary. It's a diverse list, but they're united in the way that they reveal the brokenness of the world to us. They're broken as we relate to ourselves, we look into our hearts. They're broken as we relate to others. Broken as we relate to a world that has been cursed. But they're united too because they have this secondary purpose in revealing Christ's power. God's mysterious providence and his kindness to you, he allows you to suffer. So consider your hardships now, whatever that might be in your life. Those hardships are to keep you trusting him. They are to remind you of who your life is about. And so Paul boasts in them and delights in them. And as I say that, I'm aware of the conflict that that causes. 
There's an internal conflict within our hearts and we pull against it. We don't like that. We don't want to delight in suffering, even if it pushes us to him. Because our hearts want an easy life. I'm aware of the conflict more broadly as well. Some Christians would disagree with me as I preach this. There was a church that started in Oxford on Friday night, just gone. And they have this as part of their doctrinal statement. They say, we believe that God wants to heal and transform us so that we can live healthy and blessed lives in order to help others more effectively. And of course, in one sense, that is right. But in another, it's more complicated, isn't it? God did not want to heal Paul so that he knew his need of grace, so that he could help others more effectively. What does verse 10 mean for us as a church? I think it models, in a sense, how we can relate to each other. Perhaps we need to change how we perceive our flaws and our hardships and our sufferings. Perhaps our response to our weaknesses. Some of us are struggling and we find it hard to admit that or to share that or to be open about that. Now, I'm not saying we wear our hearts on our sleeves, but, but rather than photoshopping our lives, it's okay to be honest. As Paul admits weakness, so we can be honest with each other about our need of grace. So that God's power can rest upon us. I was... Um, reflecting on our previous church in Birmingham. And, and very definitely, we, we had a, a series of difficulties, a series of hardships, sadnesses over a, a fairly short period of time. came within the space of a few months. Some of you will know my dad died in his 50s, pretty much out of the blue. That was a surprise. Um, later on, Zoe and I suffered two miscarriages. They hurt. And then you look at folk in the church... And just see the struggling, the pain that people were going through. I think of a pregnant mum with a huge blood clot. I think of a little boy with an initially life-threatening genetic abnormality. I think of a healthy 20-something woman diagnosed with MS. I think of people, couples, battling with complete infertility. I say we began a culture of, of openness. It meant we had to be vulnerable with each other. We couldn't pretend anymore. And the Lord grew us up and matured us and developed us. And he showed us his ability, his sufficiency, his goodness in the midst of our weakness. So as a church, we could together say with Paul, for when we are weak, then we are strong. strikes me it's a truth that changes how we pray for each other. We're not a people who like pain. We don't like hardships. We don't like suffering. And so our usual prayer is that it will go. 
maybe we shouldn't. Paul did. Paul prayed for the thorn to disappear. But sometimes the Lord says no, because he knows best. Grasp his sufficiency, his goodness. Squash our conceited attitudes and our arrogance and pride. I think I've said in the past, and I'll say it again, that we struggle with this stuff because we think it's the big, important, clever, gifted, articulate people whom the Lord is really interested in. I think too often Christian biographies can be unhelpful because they are so inspiring. And then we just feel condemned because it's little old us. And we're overshadowed. But it's interesting, when you dig a bit deeper, when you chip away at the veneer and you kind of get behind the airbrushing that goes on, often you find another story. You find that God works in and through people's sufferings. People wrestling with anxiety, depression, guilt, darkness, doubt. Think of Luther in the 16th century. Think of Bunyan in the 17th. William Cowper in the 18th. Lord Shaftesbury in the 19th. The list goes on. And on and on, you dig a bit deeper and you find these people weren't quite so sorted. They were people who struggled. But it seems to me it's a danger as well. The danger for each of us when we are hit with difficulties... When we think it's all about an easy life, a healthy life, a blessed life in worldly terms. When we're hit with difficulties and we don't get what we want, then either we can be humbled and we go to God, or we're hardened and we go away from him. Because we think he owes us. And maybe this applies corporately as well to us as Magdalen Road as a family together. Some of you will know that the strain that we feel as a church, there's just a lot going on at the moment. There's recruitment for new pastors, for new ministry trainees. There's a a new pastor in post, feeling his way. There's a growth in numbers. There's buildings and developments there as we think through perhaps a permanent base. There's just lots coming at once and it's hard and it's tiring and that is okay. We must take our weaknesses, our concerns to him and keep doing that and keep doing that. We must let him work in and through and despite our weaknesses. Can I urge you to encourage, um, I urge you to prioritise First Tuesdays? An opportunity for us as a family together to pray every first Tuesday of the month, to, to bring our weaknesses before the Lord, to, to gather and to chat and to discuss and to, to wrestle stuff through. Can I urge you to, to prioritise early Thursdays, if you can't do that um, first Tuesday, then perhaps 7am on Thursday morning. But as a corporate group together, if we're feeling our weakness, and I think we are, then, then that must lead us to the Lord. Let's let those difficulties humble us rather than harden us. Because here's the thing. When we embrace this paradox, 
and know that we are in good company. When we live like this, so we live like Christ. So just over the page, chapter 13. Paul speaks of the cross of Christ and he says this. Chapter 13 and verse 4. To be sure, he was crucified. He, Jesus, was crucified in weakness. Yet he lives by God's power. Likewise, we are weak in him, yet by God's power we will live with him in our dealing with you. Do you see, we're following in the footsteps of our master. He's not asking us to do something that he has not done. But he is both our strength and our model for our discipleship. Friends, we live in a broken world. A painful world, a world of mourning, of difficulties. But do you see how the Lord can use those things to draw our attention away from ourselves and back to him again? To help us see that he is sufficient and good. To help us see that the story is not about us about him he uses people like us broken, weak, insulted facing hardships and suffering and difficulties to humble us so that we can say with Paul when I am weak then I am strong 